Welcome to the Open Doors live podcast, your window into what following Jesus looks like in some of the darkest places in the world. I'm your host, Jordan, and together we'll meet the persecuted church, gritty, courageous, passionate followers of Jesus from around the globe. We hope these stories remind you that God is doing wild and wonderful things around the world and that you can be a part of it. Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, the new CEO of Open Doors Australia and New Zealand, Adam Holland. Adam, thank you so much for joining me on this week's podcast. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. We're off the back of Easter long weekend. What did you guys get up to uh, over your Easter? bit of a sad story in a way our plans were affected by COVID that's never nice to say but oh, e- but no. even now we we normally go and stay in Young which is sort of down south in New South Wales a bit by Canberra where my wife's family lives but they all got COVID so we did an alternative plan we had a night in the city and then just time as a family. That's lovely I mean a bummer that you couldn't get down to Young but still nice to have that quality family time. Absolutely and the Church services are always incredible at Easter, no different for our home church at Narara Valley. And yeah, it was lovely. So great. Oh, well, Adam, you and I have a little bit in common. We're both, we were both philosophy majors at uni mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're now the CEO of Open Doors Australia and New Zealand. So why don't you start by just kind of telling us a little bit how you got involved in the ministry of Open Doors and, and maybe what drew you to the ministry? Yeah, thank you. It's it's a great question because persecution of Christians is not necessarily a topic or an idea that we engage with a lot in Western comfortable Christianity. Uh, that's true certainly in Australia and New Zealand, but many other countries as well. And so it was, it was probably a, a longer journey for me where I've realized over time there were parts of the Bible that I had just missed. And... Um, as I came to hear stories and understand more of particularly poverty, that would say, I would say that's a, a big part of my journey of probably the last 10 years and how much Jesus's ministry focused on the marginalized and the poor, the widowed. Um, and so that was a journey that I had that opened up in some ways other topics, biblical topics that I felt from a missional perspective and from... I guess a passion um, I, I wanted to explore more and um, the ministry of Open Doors was one that was familiar to me in general but in more in a more specific sense um, probably about two and a half years ago engaged um, with the ministry a bit a bit more practically and then um, came on staff almost two years ago now. Yeah, you and I actually started at the same time. Uh, yeah, it was just off the back of COVID-19 lockdown number two. Number two yes. <laughs> so we were all working How from home. <laughs> we were all working from home. Um, but it's absolutely fantastic to have you um, here in, in this position as CEO. Um, the team is just absolutely wrapped. Um, and listeners with a keen ear might detect a slight accent from you. Where are you from and how did you end up in Australia? Yes, my, my wife calls my accent mid-Pacific now, so it can be confusing. <laughs> I, um, I've spent most of my life in Australia, so uh, the majority of my life I've been here, but 
I was born and grew up in, in West Texas, in Central Texas, moved around a bit, um, and I came here for university. So I came at 19. I didn't know a single person on the continent. It was one of those adventures you do when you're, you're young and, and a little bit dumb, maybe, or naive, but <laughs> God can use those, and God, God absolutely used that. Um, I mean, my parents were very kind and generous to adapt to me having sort of a complete study focus and career change emphasis. Um, and as you said, I, I, I studied philosophy for four years at Macquarie University. And when I was there, I met um, an incredible um, young woman who is now my wife. And so matters of the heart kept me here. Um, but was part of a much broader journey where God sort of revealed himself in new ways to me. And that was part of the local church that I became part of at university, but also just mentors and those around me and really, really sort of discovered faith and in, in God again in that season. I mean, it's a huge thing to move not only countries, but continents. Like you said, you didn't know a single person when you moved. I know that feeling very well. Um, my husband is uh, from the States as well. And it, it's a it's a huge thing to adapt to to living in a in a totally different country. Um, and you know, no matter how much you love your new place, there's still some things you miss about home. Some things that feel like home. What is the strangest thing that you miss about Texas? There's probably lots of strange things about Texas, um, <laughs> like anywhere. I, it's probably the little things. I mean. There's obvious stuff that isn't strange anymore, but I remember when I first moved here, um, cooking Texas barbecue for the housemates. I lived in a share house for a couple of years, and um, they were like, what is this exotic cuisine? Whereas now it's sort of everywhere. Um, conversation for another day, but I think it's the little things. There's probably just cultural cues that you have in your formation as a person in your family or the church or the society that you grow up in. And it's often in the absence of those where you get formed with other cultural cues, which I certainly have in, in terms of Australian culture. But when you're back in Texas, um, there's like these little re-encounters with old friends and even turns of phrase of the way people say things or a sort of shared language um, that's not even explicit, but just uh, it was probably a worldview, how, how you sort of view things. And so that's family of origin stuff, uh, culture and society that you grow up in. So a roundabout answer, but it's probably all the little things that are a little bit below the surface and a little bit implicit. And um, some of those were incredibly helpful and wonderful. Some of those weren't so helpful. But either way, they sort of feel like old friends when you re-encounter them. So true, that sense of familiarity. I remember after living in the States for almost three years, coming home and just being excited that I didn't need a map to get around. True. I actually just knew where I was going. Uh, just that sense of familiarity can be kind of a bit of a sigh of relief. But um, you've, you know, lived in Australia for a long time. So I suppose this is kind of familiar now. Um, but your parents still live in Texas. But your immediate family lives here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who's in your family? Obviously, you spoke about your wife, Amanda. Absolutely. Yes, I think um, 
There's that idea of third place. Often missionaries experience that, where your home country and the country that you've served in neither become fully home because of the journey that you've been on. I, I've ha- I have moments that I feel third place, um, but, but absolutely love Australia. And, and as you say, our four kids were born here. Um, um, my, my wonderful wife is from Parramatta, so she's got a lovely, uh, Ocker's not the right word, but a really earthy um, Aussie, <laughs> Aussie origin story and, and reality, and, and absolutely love that. Um, we have three sons and a daughter. They're just a great blessing to us, and we view each other and our, our children as our first ministry, and that's something that we've sought to be intentional about for for many years. Um, we're into the teenage years now, as well as still a few of the younger years, and try to view that as an incredible stewardship responsibility and opportunity um, where our four children are ours, but they're really gods, and, and how do we equip them to be disciples in a lifelong journey with Jesus? And that's easier in some days, harder in some days, but it's it's true for us in our own journey. Um, but such a blessing. We're, we're very grateful for our family, and um, we, we do view that as our first ministry. And I absolutely love your kids. They are kind and humble and responsible, uh, especially your daughter, Emma. I just <laughs> love her to bits. And it's been so nice to see you kind of bring them along and they've been such a part of um, the beginning of this leadership, uh, your time leading Open Doors Australia New Zealand. Can you maybe tell us what's been your favourite thing about leading Open Doors Australia New Zealand oh. so far? You kind of did it in an interim way yeah. and then now in a formal way. Yes. What yes. do you love about it? Heaps. I love heaps. I think um, the two things that spring to mind uh, immediately are the mission is incredible. I, I think as you, as I've sought to understand more and engage with the reality that my experience of being a Christian is not normal. Um, that's true across history. Like what, what's the experience of most followers of Jesus across history? But it's true right now. The majority of believers don't, don't live in a context that I sort of take for granted or have taken for granted. And so the mission's incredible. Um, and understanding the history more has just um, has has driven my passion even greater. But the second thing that springs to mind is the team. Um, we have an incredible team, and I think what's been an encouragement and just something that has um, helped form a view of the future for me is the diversity of our team being genuinely complementary. Um, I think our, our, our team in Australia and New Zealand express some of the breadth of the church landscape, but also different skills, talents, and that's come together in ways that I would I would probably argue aren't possible in the natural, um, but, but God has been at work, and so seeing that form and the team has just been incredible. So the mission and the team. That's amazing. It is true, I guess, we talk so much about being the one body and one with the persecuted church we are one church across all continents but then in in a micro level uh on a local level we live out an expression of the body of christ and it is beautiful just to see the grace of god on 
our ministry, I guess, that we can operate as the body of Christ. Mm. Uh, you know, we're not a church, we're a ministry, but we do kind of exemplify what it means to be the body of Christ, kind of all different parts working together to achieve that core mission, like you said. Absolutely. And, and that's true of our donors as well. I mean, getting the chance to engage with and meet many of our donors it's an extension. Um, um, our, our donors are so passionate about the ministry of Open Doors and a very faithful and generous uh, response to that, um, a biblical response to that need. And the team, in some ways, the, our, our donors, our supporters are, are such an incredible extension of that team. And it's been wonderful to get to know some of them through this role as well. It's amazing. Yeah, we love our supporters. We love our donors. We love our podcast listeners. <laughs> so the way that Open Doors started was our founder, Brother Andrew, in the Netherlands, saw that believers living behind the Iron Curtain in communist Eastern Europe didn't have access to the word of God uh, because of communist ideology. So he started smuggling Bibles across borders illegally <laughs> uh, in his tiny blue VW um, it's just an incredible beginning of just a, a story of absolute courage and um, and just passion for people to have access to Bibles. And you got to spend some time in the Netherlands last year at Brother Andrew's memorial service. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that memorial service. How was that for you? It's almost hard to summarize. I mean, the, the ministry of Open Doors is... Uh, tied to this almost unbelievable origin story. And for those that have read God's Smuggler, it's, um, it's such a gripping read because you think this really happened. It's, it's incredible. Um, and so at, at his memorial service, there was multiple moments um, where those who knew him well, both in ministry partnership, but also in terms of a family sense and community sense, just reflected on um, how he chose to live his life and that radical yes that he said to God, um, including putting himself at a great risk right throughout his life. I mean, in terms of physical threats to him, um, it was it was incredible to hear some of those stories. Again, many of those are in the book. Um, but the, the memorial service was touching because... Um, the why behind Brother Andrew's life and the why behind the Ministry of Open Doors shone through. And um, it's that we're part of a broader narrative and we're part of a, part of a broader purpose, which is, which is God's purpose and um, his work in, in the world. And so probably the most touching moment for me was um, one of Brother Andrew's children speaking from stage, um, holding a Bible in his hand, and in a, in a typical Dutch fashion, fairly direct communication, um, but imploring those who wanted to celebrate and memorialize Brother Andrew to, to do that as his dad. I mean, this is, he's, he's referring to his father. Um, but to not fall into the trap of equating, to, to not replicate the specifics of what Brother Andrew did, and that's true for the ministry of Open Doors, but it's also true for us as disciples of Jesus. Um, Don't try to recreate the specifics. Um, However, use as inspiration the life of Brother Andrew to 
have a willingness to say yes and to have a high view of scripture, um, to believe in one body and what the Bible teaches us and tells us about that. Um, so there, there was a richness to the memorial service that was, um, it's hard to summarize, uh, but I think that moment probably distills down how Brother Andrew chose to, to live his life, how he sought to create the ministry of Open Doors and, and, and to be empowered to move forward as an organization to not feel that adapting to a new world and a new context is dishonoring in any way to the founding leadership or subsequent leadership, but that's precisely what um, the organization should be doing globally and locally, and it's what Brother Andrew would have wanted. I love that um, because, you know, challenges arise and, you know, it's a different global world than it was you know, when in 1955, when Brother Andrew first smuggled Bibles, but the conviction of our ministry is still the same. And um, I remember reading in, in God's Smuggler, uh, so Brother Andrew's biography, he uh, was given this Bible when he went off into the service and he was given this Bible by his mum and he kind of thought, well, this is lame, I'm never going to read this. And he ended up getting injured really early on in his time uh, in the service and so he, um, you know, was bored, absolutely nothing to do and so he pulls out this little book that his mum had given him and uh, and starts reading the Bible and he met Jesus in the pages of that Bible injured in a random bed mm. <laughs> um, what I mean and then that conviction I guess led to him realizing mm. well the power of the Bible is that you can meet God in these pages the word of God is alive and active absolutely I mean the um, the book is just great I, I reread it over Christmas if if anyone, uh, hasn't had the chance to read it it's absolutely worth doing it because you <laughs> there's moments of you know reading about getting rip-roaring drunk there's moments <laughs> of like romantic intrigue where you're like oh where is this going huh? who, <laughs> yeah. who who does he end up with yeah. um and just uh insight into war insight into you know the 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 expansive um, expression of the Netherlands and Holland as um, that's why I ended up in Indonesia um, but also moments that you refer to where he's lying in bed and um, Roman Catholic nurses minister to him in, in a very scriptural sense of they believe God's at work and that everyone's created in the image of God and there's an opportunity for um, everyone that, that is their patience to come to know him, combined with this Bible that his mother had given him. It's such an incredible and, and touching moment. Um, but I think, I, I think in some ways it's a great insight to the role uh, that Scripture plays in the ministry of Open Doors because it's so interwoven with how Brother Andrew came to Christ and... Um, the high view that he had of scripture and how that's continued through the, the absolute importance of the Bible and, and who the organization is, how it operates internally, but also how we seek to serve 
those that are persecuted. Um, it's one of those golden threads that, that, that um, weaves its way through everything, which, which is incredible. It's amazing. And yeah, just a reminder of the value of the word of God. I mean, um, I, for myself and my own life, my first encounter with God uh, before, um, before I had ever really heard the gospel, I was given a little red Gideon's Bible mm. at school. And I remember taking it home and I used to read under my covers mm just a little book nerd and I just took out this little red bible that I was given and started reading it and mm. I remember reading the Lord's prayer mm. and where Jesus says this is how you should pray mm. and with no human explaining it to me I thought well I better learn how to pray and so I, I memorized it wow. and I was seven years old at the time and then years later when I heard the gospel for the, the first time when I was 12 I realized I knew the words mm. of the Lord's Prayer mm. because there was something mm. in me that was beckoning me through the Bible um, that there was a God that I can know that that wants to know me. Mm. Um, so it really is. It's so powerful. I, it's funny you say the Gideon's Bible. I, one of our sons um, a few weeks ago at the end of the term, the Gideons visited our the school our children are at and they gave Bibles, um, little red um, sort of, I think, Psalms, Proverbs, and New Testament. Yeah, that's exactly what I had, yeah. <laughs> there's like a thematic index in the front that yeah. has topics, fear, or, um, you know, faith, or I'm trying to find words that start with a different letter. Um, um, <laughs> just topics that the Bible, you know, communicates truth on. And I found one of our sons highlighting <laughs> those topics and then referring back to the verses and highlighting them. And... It was incredibly encouraging to um, the, the relevance of scripture is always true, but we just have to be present and, and responsive to it. And it was just special to see that. Um, I mean, he has other Bibles, but there was something about that moment and that being given to him. And um, yeah, God was using that. It's lovely to hear that he used that in your life as well. I love that. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, Adam could tell when you're having to record and cut this up. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is so beautiful and so amazing to hear um, the scripture kind of speaking alive. Uh, speak. So amazing to hear the scripture speaking to young children and um, and yeah, that 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 book is alive and active. And actually, the verse that we've been dwelling on a team coming up on our Bible appeal, which happens every year, um, is Hebrews four twelve, which is the word of God is alive and active. Mm -hmm. The Bible is so much more than a book, um, as we know. It's one of the most valuable ways that we can know Jesus and not only know him for ourselves, but also the wider story of God mm. that we are all a part of. Um, can you remember when the Bible went from being just a book to you to being alive and active in your own life? Yes, I can. There's probably a few moments and I would say part of it is a broader journey of we we live in and we hear a lot about an information age or knowledge economy and information's important. Often it equates to power. People with more information have more power, um, knowledge in the same way. But the challenge for, for followers of Jesus and for the church is to not read the Bible as information. Uh, it should be it should be formation. 
and I think I've probably ebbed and flowed in that over my um, my journey and faith. And so there's a few moments that I think the formation side of it became became very uh, just apparent and tangible. Um, and so what I mean, one of those when I was at university, and I still actually remember I remember someone coming to speak at the the church that I was at. It was on the campus of Macquarie Uni. I was, lived at a college for the first couple of years, and um, they were f- reflecting on a generational change that occurred where um, in the previous generation, and he was sort of holding the topics fairly loosely, but 20, 30 years ago, and this, this would have been in the, the sort of mid-late-90s, um, he was referring back sort of 20, 30 years before that. Often what would happen before someone would join a church or a community was, tell me what you believe, and then I consider joining your community or being part of what you're a part of. And what he was anticipating was that's shifted. And so many people will now say, I want to know you. I want to be part of your community. And then I'll work out what you believe. And there was something about that that stuck with me in terms of um, how you approach authority or topics or reality or information. Um, and so that was a little bit at work in me. And then I, w- I was reading a book by Philip Yancey, uh, What's Amazing About Grace, which had an influence on many people, but it certainly had an influence on me. And um, I took a trip. I was sort of a keen camper and, and did a big ill-advised hike across Fraser Island and um, just had that book and the Bible. And there was something in that, in that experience that went very much to formation and a sense of um, I never lacked trust in the Bible or Scripture. I held it to be absolutely true. Um, but somehow my trust in Jesus brought alive trust in Scripture that made it more formative and formational than just simply informational. And, and so things like reading, a Bi- reading the Bible in a year, I mean, my, my wife and I are, are reading chronologically through the Bible this year. They're great plans. They're excellent. But I had absolutely fallen in the trap at times of going through a lot of the Bible, but the Bible not going through me mm. because it was information and, and, and not formation. So that was one particular moment. Um, there's been others. There were, there were seasons before that when I was younger, and there's certainly been seasons in my um, my discipleship journey um, my apprenticeship journey with Jesus where in recent years I've I've fallen into habits which are um, reading reading the Bible for input to achieve something whether it's a message um, whether it's inspiration whether it's and God can work with that and that's not you know that's not a bad thing in itself but um it's relatively limiting in the end. Mm. Yeah, man, as um, people who you, you love information, love learning, uh, it can be tempting to read it for input's sake. I know um, my top strength and strengths finder is input. Okay. <laughs> so I just like information. I like to know stuff. 
um, it fills something in my, you know, it's really satisfying to me. Um, but yeah, the journey, I guess, of the Bible being alive and active is that it's not just a normal book. It is um, a person. Mm. He is the word, mm. um, the word made flesh. But the word of God is more than just the words on the page. Mm. It's actually a person that we can know. And part of the discovery, as you said, apprenticeship to Jesus is actually learning to read the Bible for n- knowing the person. Absolutely. And I mean, Jesus speaks directly to that um, multiple times. I mean, many times, but he is the fulfillment of the, the law and the prophets. Um, I mean, we miss some of what that would mean to a first century Jew hearing that. I mean, even Gentiles, but particularly first century Jews, um, it holds together in him. It is him. And that's a radically different way to read scripture, in, including Old Testament as well as New Testament. Um, because some, this is a slight tangent in some ways, but I, I think some of what, I missed in reading New Testament passages where Jesus is speaking to Sadducees and Pharisees. We're probably more familiar with the sort of Pharisees, but for Sadducees, there's a degree to which um, they held Scripture pretty loose. So they didn't. I mean, there's the famous famous passage where he they sort of try to trick Jesus with the resurrection, and if a, a wife's husband dies, the brothers then marry and look after the family, which is this lovely social welfare program, but in a, in a biblical sense. Um, but they use it to try to trap Jesus. And Like who's, who's going to be his wife, you know, in the, in the resurrection? And, and Jesus' response is um, direct and, um, and, and uses scripture to correct mm. their view. Mm. And so... There can be sort of a, a loose view of scripture that, um, you know, picks and chooses bits or pieces. Um, but then you have the flip side where the Pharisees took scripture extremely seriously and tight. And um, Jesus equally uses scripture to communicate very straight with them, rebuke Um because I think either ends of that spectrum yeah. can can get confusing for us. Um, it's hard to be in the middle of those um, because there's parts of scripture that are strange yeah. and it's hard to understand. Um, I, I, if I think of my experience with persecuted Christians or re- hearing stories from persecuted Christians, um, the, vi- the Bible's vibrant, it's real, mm. um, it's immediate to them. And in some ways their circumstance and context demands that because there's no convenience in believing it. Um, but there's sort of a through line, there's, there's that middle ground that I think Jesus is speaking to and in some ways rebuking both Sadducees and Pharisees. Um, to have an incredibly high view of scripture, but ultimately it is about the fulfillment of scripture in a person, in in Jesus and and who he is. And I I think as much as that's our intent when we come to scripture, even if we do have motivations of information um, or just trying to be inspired or or get 
get something that we can hold on to. Um, as much as that connects us to the person of Jesus, um, that shows the, absolutely the Holy Spirit at work. And I think it, it, it's able to draw us closer to him in ways that are enduring and substantial and make a difference, make a difference in how we love God and, and, and how we love other people. So a very it's a bit of a tangent, but um, it is about a person. It is about Jesus and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And that's absolutely the view of the ministry of Open Doors and why we still have Bible distribution as a critical expression of our ministry. Um, but it's true for us individually as, dis as disciples of Jesus that um, as much as we read it as insight and access to a person, um, I think that's incredibly fruitful in our, in our discipleship journey. Yeah, that that's so good. And, and even just knowing that right now around the world, there are people that are praying for a Bible because they have come to know Jesus, as you said, through relationship, through a friendship with someone, um, you know, someone who is, um, uh, you know, their friend who knows Jesus and they've been sharing Jesus over the dinner table or through doing life together and someone's come to know Jesus and then they're praying for their own Bible because they can't go out and just buy one or download it on their phone like we can. Um in fact, there's, I think, an estimated 1.45 billion people who currently mm. don't have access to the Bible, mm. which seems like an insane amount of people. And there might be some people listening to this podcast who are actually shocked to find out that we actually need to distribute Bibles. I mean, in today's global age, living in Australia and New Zealand or, you know, wherever you're listening to this podcast, uh, where Christian material is just, you know, accessible mm. at the tips of our fingers mm. – it can be really hard to comprehend that there are countries in which the Bible and Christian material is still highly restricted. I mean, the Bible is still on the banned book list in 52 countries. So for believers in countries like North Korea, Afghanistan or Somalia, um, some of you might be familiar with our World Watch list, which is our index of the 50 most dangerous places in the world to follow Jesus. Um, just possessing a copy of the Bible could be a death sentence. How do you personally, Adam, hold in tension the overwhelming need for Bibles, this 1.45 billion people who don't have access to the Bible, this overwhelming need for Bibles with the hopeful reality that God is still moving powerfully in the world? Hmm. It is a tension. I think that's a good way to put it, Jordan, um, because... Open Doors actually partners with many other organizations to meet that need. Um, so we wouldn't pretend to be doing that alone um, in terms of work on the ground to be able to have covert distributions of Bibles. There's an incredible network of cooperative, collaborative ministries that seek to do that. And the specific Bible distribution ministry of open doors over time is incredible. I mean, there's moments that are just dramatic and, and literally hard to believe. Uh, in our staff meeting this week, we heard from one of the Dutch open doors team members who joined the ministry in 1978 and shared some of his story of smuggling Bibles in, into a number of countries. But in one instance where they got a Bible to a believer, a woman who had never had a Bible, her response was, hands on both sides and to kiss it because it was this 
it was this moment of realization that I have access to the truth. I have access to what is um, holy scripture and the importance of that to her. And as you say, it's not it's not an option to casually purchase a Bible or other Christian literature or to, to just, um, I guess, feel a freedom to say, let's meet together and talk about the Bible or have a Bible study or a, a sort of community gathering. So it's, as you say, it's incredibly, it's still incredibly important and a very sophisticated distribution method. So um, covert means by which Bibles can be apps on computers and hidden. Um, physical Bibles, absolutely. Um, audio Bibles are a big part of it as well, and how that's able to be disguised, even what that is. Um, so the need is great, and I think, sadly, we don't see that changing, as many of the countries on the world watch list, sort of where it's bad, it is getting worse. And in terms of both political government, but also societal and cultural pressures to stamp out where Christians gather together or there's belief in Jesus. Um, none of those contexts welcome Bibles, none of them. And so the need is great. Um, and, and it's such a simple thing, but it's an incredibly powerful thing. And it's something that unites us as one body globally, the ecclesia as, as the body of Christ, but it unites us over time because just like we saw Jesus quoting scripture and his temptation, um, but also to Sadducees, Pharisees, um, Jews, Gentiles, everyone, um, there's an incredible rich history of where scripture, how God chose to communicate his truth to us for thousands of years. And so it's, it's an ancient thing, but it's an immediate and a, and a present thing as well. Yeah, the, just that desperate need, uh, but still the absolute joy of receiving a Bible. And you spoke to those audio Bibles, um, the way that we're getting Bibles into the hands of believers all over the world, especially in places where illiteracy levels are high. Uh, along with literacy programs that are helping people to learn to read and read the Bible. Um, we're also distributing audio Bibles so that people can hear the word of God in a language that they understand. And um, just recently, 3,000 audio Bibles were distributed in India. Uh, I mean, it's not all of the believers in India that need a Bible. 3,000 doesn't meet um, every need. Uh, but still, that's 3,000 families and communities that are transformed uh, by, by receiving an audio Bible. And I think, yeah, it's, it's inspirational because that, that means something very significant to each person that receives that. And that's often the trick with the numbers. I, I, I find that challenging where you, um, I can get lost in volume and uh, the scale and volume is really important um, and that's enabled by the generosity of our supporters uh, because the need is so great. But to remind myself that each number is, is a literal person and uh, I think Open Doors is one of those ministries that 
the more you discover and explore it, the more incredible it is. And I think sometimes the nature of our work makes it challenging for us to communicate the specifics of what happens on the ground. Right, because so much of it is secret, so much we can't actually say because of security purposes. And it's a delicate balance. Um, so even things like this and a podcast, there's guidelines for what can be communicated and, and what can't. We just recently had our global CEO of Open Doors International here, Dan Olashani, an incredible leader. And there's so much that he oversees and leads, um, yet uh, even even for security reasons in a staff context, um, have has you know having guidelines of what can be communicated and what can't, so that that work is not jeopardized, and and particularly the lives of those who minister to persecuted Christians and persecuted Christians themselves don't face increased risks because of of how we communicate the detail but the more you discover and the more you know the more incredible it is and each number is a person and there is something that's incredibly powerful to think of whether it's that 3,000 or whether it's the thousands of other believers who the the sheer joy of having the opportunity to to read the bible or hear the bible is a depth of encouragement that it's it's just hard to us to understand um and those those numbers represent and are real people I, I have to remind myself of that regularly yeah i love that every statistic there's real people um just like us behind them and um yeah i mean it's it's our biblical mandate isn't it to search out and seek the one i mean um Matthew 25, 40 comes to mind where it says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus identifies with the one. And so it's a a beautiful invitation into not only the many and the thousands and the need, but but to to meet the needs of the one. Um, But I mean, Bible distribution, especially as you mentioned, uh, in covert places or remote places especially comes with its fair fair share of challenges uh, even just I mean just being in Egypt um, on a field trip I saw hurdles like um, illiteracy illiteracy was a big one um, access to electricity and remoteness these all present challenges to Bible distribution uh, how does open doors surmount some of these challenges There are lots of challenges. I think some of what's incredible about the ministry of Open Doors and many other other Christian not-for-profits that distribute Bibles or work in general is it's not a one-size-fits-all. That can be really um, compelling from a scalability perspective or thinking like, yes, this this one upstream solution will solve everything. But What's beautiful about that local expression of ministry is that there's no top-down version. So there's accountability and there's parameters to operate within, and those are really important. Um, But the empowerment to understand local context and to have meaningful responses to that local context is what makes the 
the responsive impact so incredible because tribes that live in highland mountain areas in Colombia mm -hmm. and don't have the Bible translated to their local dialect, Open Door still ministers to those believers who face extreme persecution um, because their community views them as turning their back on not just the thousands of years of cultural heritage they have separate to the colonized version of Colombia and Roman Catholicism, um, but like who they are, who, who they fundamentally are as a, as a community. So you can imagine the pressure those persecuted Christians live under. Um, the ministry to those people with scripture and with Bible is often through literally someone traveling there under the guise of hygiene work or digging a bore for a well, those sort of things, but teaching scripture to them. Wow. Um, all the while seeking to have translated versions of the Bible for them. Um, that wouldn't work in Burkina Faso. No. That wouldn't work in parts of Indonesia. Um, so there's a contextualized approach. Mm. As you say, in Egypt, uh, it would look one, one way or even regions of countries. And so it's, it's a very localized response to what the needs are. And that's why the partners that Open Doors works with on the ground are so crucial because they live in and understand those contexts. They are persecuted Christians themselves. Yeah. Um, and so the scalability of that is incredible because it means uh, the resource that Open Doors is able to provide in those local contexts will make the greatest impact, including what, what form of Bible will be safe or effective for those believers in those communities, um, but also understanding maybe there is a need for a different translation or there's a need for doing something differently, um, that empowerment to make sure that's contextualized and the impact is local and meaningful. Um, I, I find that inspiring because it's not a one-size-fits-all and um, that takes into account how diverse the world is and how diverse God's created us. That's so true. I mean, persecution looks different in every country and so our work looks different from country to country. And uh, something that I loved about, um, well, one of the many things that I loved about chatting with Layla uh, in, in Syria two podcasts ago, uh, if you haven't listened to that one, jump on listen to that one uh she is incredible and she's an example of those kind of local partners that we work with who know the people so well and something that she was saying is uh this isn't a parachuted in project that was her words it's not parachuted in it's actually um it's been here for a long time the way that we've been partnering with the local church here has been been here for a long time the pastors go to the church to the churches they know the people um they know where the needs at and so um instead of us parachuting in from australia our idea of how we want it to work uh, we actually get to partner with people who are super familiar with the context in which they're ministering mm, absolutely and if you if you put yourself in the shoes of where someone's not sought to understand you or consult with you or understand your specific context but then provide you solutions, you, you, you would not tend to respond to that well and for good reason. Um, so I think what, what you're touching on there is the long-term model of how Open Doors operates in the field and 
I, that's incredibly value and the legacy of that. Again, it goes back to how um, Brother Andrew founded a lot of it. It was less organizational and it was more organism. Um, Love that. Less organizational, <laughs> more organism. It's a living, moving, breathing thing rather than a Which, look, structure or program. Yeah, That's right. And that's um, as the ministry's grown, in some ways that's a great blessing and it's and it's also been <laughs> a headache <laughs> because um, you still need systems and processes and structures and ways of working. But um, I, th- I think that localized nature where there's, there's never a sense in which someone in the Netherlands or someone in Australia or the U.S. would tell a persecuted Christian what they need. Um, now, shared values and shared beliefs are absolutely uh, a crucial part of it, but that localized context. And I would say, in many ways, um, Bible distribution's an incredible expression of that because you would immediately jeopardize the safety of persecuted Christians if you parachuted in, and yeah. inverted commas, um, hard copy Bibles, or even if you had apps on your phone that were Bibles and... Persecuted Christians regularly have their physical property confiscated. Right. Regularly. Yeah. Across many countries. Um, Phones scanned through. Absolutely. Surveillance, intelligence. I mean, it seems bizarre in some ways to us. Right. Because it's so foreign from our experience. We have so much freedom. It might happen to us more than we think, to be honest. Um, Who knows? But I'm I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I I just (laughs) have a healthy distrust of things I don't understand. All you need to do is talk about something and then (laughs) you start getting ads on Facebook. It happens all the time. (laughs) But this is a much more sinister version of that. And so that that highly localized context, say specifically with Bible distribution, but it's also true with how is their pastoral training um, for church leaders or just... um, exploring theology and um, how to form community in a biblical way, all, all those things have a high degree of contextualization. And that gives me real passion for the ministry of Open Doors, but it also speaks to an incredible history, but also a beautiful future because um, that can continue in a meaningful way. Um, for years to come, sadly, there's increasing need and increasing numbers of, of persecuted Christians. It's it's a great story in one sense because people come to Christ in ways that um, are just unbelievable. Like the the, the stories are, abs- are literally hard for us to believe. They're absolutely true, mm. um, and the context that's occurring in you know, we, we see and anticipate continued persecution from many different aspects, the engines of persecution mm-hmm. across the countries or contexts those, those people live within. And so a localized expression, including with Bible distribution, um, I find that encouraging. Yeah, I mean, it is sad in some ways that, you know, the, the need keeps increasing uh, because restrictions are getting harder and harder in many countries. And yet it's actually 
beautiful because it means that the church itself is growing and expanding. I mean, here it might look like, you know, especially in our post-COVID landscape, we're looking at, you know, 33% less attendance Mm. on a Sunday. Uh, You know, it can be kind of depressing to look around and Mm. feel like the church in Australia, New Zealand or America or Canada or, uh, you know, wherever you're listening to this podcast. But um, something that encourages me about being connected to the persecuted church is daily I'm seeing the impact of, of, God around the world mm. and the way that the church is growing mm. and strengthening and I love that yeah absolutely because I in many ways we live in a post-Christian world that's true of many um, economically developed Western democratic societies and there's certain parts of that that aren't um, negative uh, there's some that are tragic but there's parts of the world that are pre-Christian Yes. Like it's not a post-Christian worldview, it's pre-Christian. Yeah. Um, that's that's bizarre to think about, but it's absolutely true. And mm. I think Or even that they received it early and then persecution came early. And so, you know, they changed religion, they changed faith because yes. of that early persecution. And it's been centuries since the gospel has actually permeated that country. Absolutely. And and God's still at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and his creation uh, in the whole world, in the whole universe. And so I think as, as I think for our discipleship journey, there's a way to be encouraged, but also constructively challenged how we are an apprentice of Jesus, how mm. we are a disciple of Jesus um, through the stories and the experiences of those that are persecuted because they, they do have to count the cost. If we want to, there's ways to be Christians in a post-Christian world that count very little cost. And in many ways, a post-Christian world wants the kingdom. It wants the benefits or the, the fruit of yeah. what a biblical worldview is, but has no interest in the king of the kingdom. Yeah. Um, there's those that live in the absolute opposite. So they have no fruits of the kingdom in the mm. sense that the kingdom is near, the kingdom is here, but the context, society, government, community they live in is is radically foreign, um, yet they have the king, they want the king. And um, that can be part of our discipleship journey to say, how do we intentionally learn from that? How do we read the Bible differently? Um, how do we grow as one body and 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 suffer with and come alongside those who are suffering um, to rejoice with those who have honor in the body um, but to have that connection and have that intentionally that's a real passion of mine I believe that in the f- in in the future for the ministry of open doors there's so much opportunity for us in our discipleship journey um, as a complement to what happens in the field um, for, for us to grow in our discipleship as we engage even more with the the persecuted part of the body. Yeah, that's so true. I think that's so interesting. We see so many of the fruits of Christianity in the things that we enjoy about our day-to-day, but there are so many countries that don't have that. So what happens when they read the Bible, uh, they identify with the oppressed Jewish people who 
aren't seeing the reality of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying the kingdom's come near and they're going, okay, well, what does that look like? But, you know, what an amazing, I mean, it just comes back to the power of the word of God being alive and active because the Bible situates all of us as part of this wider, broader story of God. You know, we see um, our own reality reflected through this cloud of witnesses that we have. I mean, when a persecuted believer reads the scripture, they are reading the story of um, the Jewish people in under occup- Roman occupation. They're seeing the, um, you know, the, the punishment for disobeying Rome. Um, and they're also seeing believers... Uh, who are filled with the spirit, who are willing to be crucified, even upside down, uh, who are willing to pay the price because they they see that the king is is worth it and that this kingdom that we live in is temporary. And I, it's so, so true. And, and again, back back to the power of the Bible. And, and we've seen again and again that getting a Bible into the hands of believers around the world has a huge impact, uh, not only on families, uh, but whole communities. You've met persecuted Christians around the world. You've done quite a bit of traveling. You've got to meet and talk with these persecuted believers. Uh, what impact have you seen the Bible have on believers who live under daily persecution? It's a great question because it makes it very tangible and real for what is different for someone um, who might have come to faith in Christ and been part of a community but has had a second-hand experience of scripture or biblical teaching uh, or has had none of that. It's, it's just they've literally come to Christ through miraculous means. So I, what I think of when you ask that question, there's a passage in John 15 um, and there's, there's the beautiful um, vine and branches and abiding in God, abiding in Christ. And then immediately after that, there's this contrast with persecution. And that's such a compelling passage, that sort of John 15, 18 to 25. And what, what many passages of Scripture teach us, but, but I think I can miss often, is that abiding, so in the vine and the branches, abiding does not protect us or exclude us from persecution. Mm. And, and in many ways, it, it attracts it. Right. And those being juxtaposed in that passage, I think, is, is intentional. Um, it can be theoretical to us. Right. It can be interesting. It can be intriguing. It's not theoretical. Yeah. to a persecuted Christian receiving a Bible. Yeah. And so to have scripture that allows God, that to, allows the Holy Spirit to work in those believers' lives, to develop a biblical framework and understanding of why, why is this my life? Mm. Because I can imagine circumstances where I no longer want to count the cost. Totally. Yeah, especially when it comes to your family. Yeah. That's right. I, I mean, you were in a children's center in Colombia with kids who are in that children's center because of the persecution that their parents face and their decision has been I would rather suffer for Christ out here uh, than stay even with my children. I mean, that's really hard to comprehend. What was that like being in a place like that? Yeah, or and and children becoming orphans because of that commitment of their parents. Um, 
I mean, it's one example of many that um, there's there's not an option to deny Christ. I know that. I mean, that's it's easy to say, but it's incredibly hard to imagine the reality of that and live that out. And of course, look there. There would be, I would say this with confidence, there are persecuted believers who are just waiting for Jesus to return. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're waiting if um, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Like that's real, that's true, as foreign as that is to myself and maybe some of the people listening to this. It's absolutely true. Um, but having, having a Bible through that journey is a unity with the rest of the body. Yeah. It's a connection back to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's a it's a connection back to Isaiah and prophecy and I mean, how do you how can you summarize what that means? It's impossible. It's um it's an immediacy and a depth that gives strengthening and a a substantial part of their journey to count the cost and continue in in faith with Jesus. That's amazing. Yeah. So I guess we've, we've just been chatting about the power of a Bible. If someone did want to give a Bible to a persecuted believer today, um, a listeners listening to this and convicted and the power of the, the scripture and the need, uh, what, what can they do? We, we, love, we love the partners that we have with the Ministry of Open Doors. And as I shared before, having met many of them, it's inspirational. It's incredible, just the faithful generosity. And that's, um, that's not just financial generosity. That's absolutely true. But generosity of time, of advocating for the Ministry of Open Doors, of prayer and that's that's something that is never out of date um i think in terms of the specific opportunity where open doors globally has a focus on bible distribution and the invitation to be a part of that on our websites there's the chance to understand that campaign better Mm -hmm. and be part of it Um, it shares real stories of believers that have had impact in their life that's incredibly significant and positive from uh, mm. access direct access to scripture um there's different dollar amounts to be able to do that with mm-hmm. um I, I think for wherever people find themselves to be able to engage in that with financial generosity we appreciate that uh, we equally appreciate prayer and yeah. the advocating for the ministry of open doors and people's networks and their communities and their church communities it's amazing yeah we love our partners and we just couldn't do it without you guys so um yeah we're, we're excited to see what we uh can do together for the global body of christ as we smuggle bibles this um this may and june uh i would love for you to pray for us adam um Currently, Open Doors local partners are traveling to some of the most restricted and remote regions, as you mentioned, into the hills of Colombia um, or, you know, the, the far-reaching areas of, of Somalia where it's really dangerous uh, to, to bring the word of God. Uh, 
and they're bringing Bibles to believers who currently don't have access to the Bible. So I would love for you to pray for our local partners around the world uh, and for those believers who still need a Bible. Thanks, Jordan. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your expression of that uh, and the life and death and resurrection of your son, just with Easter being so recent, Lord, having that as front of mind for us. And Lord, we thank you that Holy Scripture is something that um, you've worked through people uh, to create, Lord, that uh, it's it's eternal truth, it's literature, um, but it's vibrant because it's it's a person. It's It expresses Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the new covenant. And Lord, we give you thanks for that. We do give you thanks for those who support the ministry of Open Doors and the great blessing we hope and pray that is in their life, but equally the, the blessing that is and the impact that creates in the lives of persecuted believers around the world, Lord. Um, we do pray for the partners on the field and the front line where they're assessing that contextualized impact. How can they safely and meaningfully partner with persecuted Christians? And however covert or overt that is, Lord, that um, you provide them wisdom. And, and Lord, we do pray specifically for the distribution of Bibles in a way that uh, doesn't jeopardize those partners uh, or uh, underground believers and underground churches, Lord, but um, as a great blessing to those who receive them. It's an encouragement to those who do the work to distribute them. Lord, and we can't help but think of the early days of the ministry of, of Open Doors and that passion and boldness that Brother Andrew had to go places that the Bible simply wasn't accessible, it wasn't there. And we give you thanks that that high view of Scripture has continued through uh, in the ministry of Open Doors. And we pray for great blessing for those persecuted believers that um, it's blessing in a different sense probably from how we normally use the word, but to be blessed, to be closer to you, um, Lord, to be encouraged in their journey um, despite and, and, and sometimes because of the challenges that they face, Lord, that they're drawn closer to you and that the Bible's a precious part of that, Lord. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Adam. And thanks for having a chat with me and with the listeners today. It's just been so great to have you on. Lovely to hear just your wisdom and your thoughtfulness and the way that you have just steadily sought God over many, many years, which has led you to this place. It's just absolutely incredible for us to have you. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Jordan. I, it's, it's an absolute joy and, and, and a challenge in the best way possible to be part of the ministry of Open Doors because it, it deepens my discipleship journey, my relationship with God. And I certainly pray that's the case. And I hope that's the case for everyone that engages with our ministry, including the podcast. So thank you for doing a great job hosting. And it's been lovely to share the time together. Oh, well, we'll, we'll have you back on in no time, I'm sure. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you. 
So we're going to finish today uh, with a poem that I found uh, from a little girl named Fatima. And Fatima lives at a rehab facility in a country in Central Asia with her mother. And this program is run by Open Doors Local Partners, where women of a variety of backgrounds, they may have faced drug abuse, homelessness, alcoholism or even prostitution and they find safety and shelter at this centre and they receive clothes, food, a safe place to live. They are met with love and grace and it's also a loving environment for their children too. And the women learn parenting skills. Uh, For many, it's the first time in their lives that they've had a safe place to live and to flourish. And for many of these women and their families, um, they're from Muslim backgrounds. So they're learning to read the Bible for the very first time. And they receive a copy of the Bible for themselves and, and help reading the Bible. And they begin to understand, as we talked about with Adam, this bigger story of God and the part that they have to play in it. And Little Fatima uh, is learning about the character of God for the very first time. And she's got this this little poem that I'm going to play. She's going to uh, read it um, uh, in, in a language that we can't understand. Uh, but the, the words of this poem, uh, I'll, I'll say it to you uh, before we listen to her. He is everywhere in the heavens and the sky, the air and in the water. He sees everything. He knows everything. He understands everyone in the world. He is the saviour for me and for you. He is everywhere and he lives. Thank God. Amen. Let's finish with her poem. Все он видит, все он знает, всех на свете понимает. Он спаситель мой, твой, он повсюду, он живой. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast, your window into what following Jesus looks like in some of the darkest places in the world. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information on our work, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz.